Kia ora and welcome to today's webinar on AI and health. What does ChatGPT mean for me? I'm Rebecca Macbeth. I'm the news editor at HINS and I'll be your facilitator today. I would like to thank Wild Bamboo for sponsoring this webinar. So we do have a great lineup for you today and I will ask each panelist to just briefly introduce themselves. So joining me today, we have Albert Buffett. Kia ora, Albert. Hi, Kia ora. I'm Albert Buffett, the director of the AI Institute at the University of Waikato. And we have Chris Patton. Hi folks, I'm Chris Payton. I'm the Director of the Postgraduate Digital Health Programme at the University of Otago and I also work at Oxford University as a clinical researcher doing work in Kenya and Vietnam. Thanks Chris. And we have Nick Kemp. Kia ora koutou, ko Nick Kemp I'm the CE at Wild Bamboo uh, and we work with uh, mental health service providers and social sector organisations across New Zealand. Kia ora, Nick, and Tanya Morinhout. Kia ora, my name is Tanya Morinhout. I'm a GP and a lecturer at the Bioethics Centre at the University of Otago. So I combine a clinical role with work as an ethicist, mainly focusing on digital health. Thank you, Tanya. So we are going to have presentations from each of the panelists, and then I will open up the floor for questions. So first, we're going to hear from Albert. And um, apologies, we are having a little trouble with um, our slides at the moment. So Albert uh, won't be able to talk, uh, we won't be able to show his slides, but we will post all of the slides underneath the uh, webinar link later today. Thanks, Albert. Thank you. So, yeah, so my, my idea for this uh, short uh, introduction to what is uh, ChatGPT was to start with uh, what is uh, AI. And uh, for that, um, there are many, many definitions, but uh, I think that the one that I like the most is one from the European Commission that says that uh, AI basically is a collection of technologies that combine uh, data, algorithms, and computing power. Uh, and for me, this is really good because it uh, tells us what is AI and what is not. So AI is based on data. So data is the most important thing. We have then the, the algorithms that are going to, to be uh, doing things with this data. And for that, we need uh, computing power. So it's not a coincidence that nowadays the big uh, um, organizations leading uh, on large language models are these big tech companies, they have a lot of computational power. So again, it's data, algorithms, and computing power. So now let's go to ChatGPT. So what is ChatGPT? So as you may know, ChatGPT is this app from OpenAI that has been successful. I have to say that technically, people think that ChatGPT is a large language model. Uh, but that's not uh, only that. So uh, ChatGPT is a combination of a large language model and reinforcement learning. So let, let me explain this. So uh, what, what is a large language model? So a large language model is basically uh, an algorithm that is going to be able to predict what is the next word in a, in a sentence, in a text. So it's uh, using all of these data. It's, uh, it's a big, big uh, uh, model and then is able to make uh, uh, predictions for the next word that comes into uh, a sentence. And this is uh, why we are talking right now about uh, these technologies, because 
Uh, this is based on transformers. This is a technology that is recent from 2017 and that changed uh, how we are doing uh, machine learning and uh, deep learning. And then, so as I said, ChatGPT is a combination of this large language model and reinforcement learning. So what, what is this reinforcement learning? So reinforcement learning basically is uh, getting feedback from the users and then using this feedback to improve the model. So, and, and maybe this is the reason why ChatGPT is being so popular and is working so well because it's not only a machine learning model, but it's also having this uh, reinforcement learning. That means that working with uh, humans, right, uh, it's uh, getting much uh, better results. So we don't need to, to think of ChatGPT as something that works alone. Uh, basically, it's based on data from, from us and it's based on the feedback that we are providing with this reinforcement learning. So yeah, just to, uh, to, 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 to talk about uh, health, uh, I wanted to mention there's a, a recent book that is called The AI Revolution in Medicine, GPT-4 and Beyond from Peter Lee, Carrie Goldberg, and Isa Cohen. And uh, I think it's a very interesting book because it's already mentioning what are the, the applications of uh, chat GPT in, in health. So yeah, you, you can see that the main thing is uh, it can answer uh, medical questions from from patients. Um, and that's uh, a way that we can see that if this works, it's going to democratize how we access uh, medical information. Then it's very good at generating summaries or reports of, uh, of uh, documents. It can assist doctors or nurses with uh, this decision-making and, and documentation. So it's very good at, uh, at dealing with uh, text so, and all of these uh, communications between uh, clinicians and patients. And finally, it can create a lot of educational materials for, for patients and for medical students. So these are the good things of uh, ChatGPT. So yeah, I'd like to, to conclude saying that we it's not only good things, so we, we need to also to look at the dangers. So we have uh, uh, the AI Researchers Association, we have created a discussion paper that is called ChatGPT and Large Language Models. Uh, what are the implications for policymakers? And there we, we are doing like the 12 policy recommendations. So ones are in, in, the, in one sense, we are saying that we need to embrace ChatGPT. We don't need to, to go against uh, these uh, advances, but also at the same time, we, we advise that we need to be careful with the dangers that in this case is that uh, ChatGPT can do mistakes. So what ChatGPT is doing is is writing is 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 um, can be fiction. So still is something that uh, we really need humans to to check that uh, what ChatGPT is providing is 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 true and is not uh, is not false. So yeah, and uh, I think that uh, was my 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 short introduction. So. In ChatGPT is a technology that is very, very promising, but also at the same time, we really need to, to look at uh, what it's doing and, and check that it's doing it right, because still at the moment, technically, we call hallucinations. So we need to be careful with all the mistakes that uh, ChatGPT is doing. So yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Albert, for that introduction. And next up, we're going to hear from Chris. Thanks, Chris. Hi there, do you want me to try and share my screen or shall we just proceed? Let's just proceed. Okay, super. So hi everybody. So yeah, uh, so 
I've got two jobs. One is with the University of Otago, where I run a postgraduate uh, diploma and certificate on digital health. And one is with the University of Oxford, and that's uh, where I do research uh, on digital health in uh, Kenya and in Vietnam. So I'm just going to talk about um, uh, three things. So first is how are we currently using uh, AI in our research? Um, um, the second is uh, what are the challenges of implementing uh, AI? So what are we looking at in terms of that? And then third is about, you know, as we move to this kind of new world of um, these large language models and how they kind of transition from narrow applications to more general applications of AI, what are the implications of that? So first of all, um, in Kenya, we're using um, uh, smartphones and using the camera feed from smartphones to help uh, healthcare workers in rural settings to diagnose children with either severe or non-severe pneumonia. So a healthcare worker can point their smartphone uh, at a child and using uh, AI technology developed in the NHS, uh, we should be able to recognise the heart rate and the breathing rate um, of a child and use those combined with other information the health worker collects uh, to determine whether or not the child needs to be admitted to hospital or can be treated um, in the community. Um, we're also working in Vietnam on a large project uh, called VITAL, which is uh, the Vietnam ICU Translational Applications Laboratory. And this project is working with lots of teams uh, from different universities. Uh, one of these teams is looking at using um, the feed from pulse oximetry sensors uh, to do uh, risk scoring for patients. And the, the point of that really is that instead of using complicated um, uh, uh, monitors that display lots and lots of information, uh, which the uh, clinicians have to interpret, whether we can use the kind of raw data from the sensors to do a kind of fairly simple risk score. And then in a country where you don't have access to that many doctors, uh, you could maybe have nurses interpret the risk score um, and then refer on uh, if needed. Uh, we also uh, um, have a project within Vital, which is about using ultrasound um, uh, scanning. So we're using the feeds that come out of the kind of normal ultrasound machine and then applying AI technology to that to try and recognise what's being seen on the screen. And again, that's to help um, different types of healthcare professionals uh, who wouldn't normally be involved in that kind of um, uh, procedure to be able to carry out the procedure. So the AI can identify things and guide the health uh, professionals through the process. So my team is looking at how these types of technologies are implemented. So we're not designing or developing uh, the technologies, but we're trying to think about how do you actually integrate uh, AI technology into healthcare? Uh, so we do things like ethnographic work and um, we're conducting a review of policies and guidelines in Vietnam and really thinking about how if you, if you introduce a technology like this, how does it fit into clinical workflows? but also how does it abide by various laws and regulations around new technologies uh, in healthcare. And this is particularly interesting with AI technologies because they've, there's not really very many examples of governments who are regulating these uh, um, in the same way that you might regulate drugs or other medical devices. And so there's a lot of change going on in that world of uh, AI regulation. And so finally, I just wanted to mention about how uh, things are going to change uh, in the near future due to things like ChatGPT uh, and other similar types of technology. Um, so although ChatGPT is not what you would call an, uh, an artificial general intelligence, uh, so it's still um, 
uh, not quite the same as uh, you would get from a, a human-like AI, but it seems like we're moving quite quickly in that uh, direction. And fairly soon, we're going to have a challenge with how uh, we uh, implement these types of solutions, um, particularly in healthcare, because they're so difficult to understand what they're doing and they have such power and such kind of general uh, scope. Uh, just to highlight uh, one bit of research recently, which was um, uh, some uh, research group compared <coughs> how um, uh, physicians answer questions from patients versus how chat uh, GPT answers questions from patients. And uh, the study used a Reddit forum, and uh, this Reddit forum is normally uh, has um, doctors who answer questions kind of for free from the general public. And so what they did is they took those answers that the doctors normally provide, and then they put the same questions into chat GPT and generated answers. And then they got a panel of healthcare professionals to look at the answers and compare the kind of two results. And they found that they thought that uh, the chatbot responses, the chat GPT responses, uh, were better in terms of quality of the answer and with empathy from the patients, which was quite an interesting result. Um, and then finally, just wanted to mention a study uh, from Google um, that showed that although these large language models are designed to predict the next word, uh, as Albert was saying, it seems like they might have additional capabilities as well. So it's not just that they're uh, predicting words, they might actually be uh, able to do some kind of reasoning. And it's not really clear if they are doing that, or if it looks like they're doing that. And if they are doing that, we don't really understand how they're doing it. And this is quite a problem for healthcare, because we really want to understand how our healthcare interventions actually work. We don't just want a black box uh, that we don't understand things, particularly a problem if it is doing things like reasoning, uh, which is would put it in a position of um, similar to a healthcare professional, which should be kind of regulated and looked after. Um, so, yeah, so lots of people. Um, I was going to put a slide up about uh, Jeffrey Hinton, who's just resigned from Google and is kind of blowing the whistle about how dangerous uh, this kind of AGI type technology might be in a few years time. And I think it's a bit of a wake-up call. Uh, we need to get our ducks in a row in terms of how we regulate uh, AI and healthcare. Um, but looking forward to the discussion. So thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. And yes, uh, apologies about the slides not being able to be shown, but we will post them all. And also someone's asking about links to some of the policy documents and um, studies that we've mentioned. So we'll try and get those up um, on the webinar page as well. Like I said, a link to this um, recording of this will be available to view later today. Um, so do keep the questions coming in by hovering over the three dots button in the bottom right hand corner of your screen and selecting ask a question. And next we're going to hear from Nick. Sorry, hopefully you can hear me okay. Um, the skies have just opened and the rain and hail is coming down and the sunroof isn't really uh, <laughs> making things easier for me. Um, and also, I uh, apologise, I had some really uh, really good jokes in the slides, but we'll have to let those go <laughs> to the wayside. <laughs> so it's just dead jokes for today. Kia ora koutou, I'm the CEO at Wild Bamboo. Um, I've been working in tech for something like 20 odd years. And really, I'm, I'm not an AI expert, but I am absolutely a, an IT nerd. And I've spent that 20 odd years trying to figure out how to bend technology to make it more useful for people, make things easier for people, 
uh, make it easier to adopt different things in different settings. Uh, and I spent the last 10 or so years working in the, the social and sort of health setting as well. So working on things like um, Life Keepers, Auntie D, Just a Thought, those sorts of different online services that I guess bend traditional things with tech to try and introduce things in a new way. So really keen to share some of the conversations that we've been having, uh, explore some of the questions that we've been asking and try and figure out where we take some of these things with you all today. Um, what is AI and ChatGPT? I'll but kind of clarify that. Chris explored some of the ways it's being used, um, but I, I just wanted to touch on why is it so popular right now. Um, it, it kind of feels like it's going through a bit of an iPhone moment. Um, you know, it's it's been around for you know 50 to 70 odd years as a concept and, and kind of introduced in various different ways along that time. But really, only late last year that we saw ChatGPT kind of unveiled on the on the masses and massive adoption. You know, uh, I think it was something like five days to see a million users and two months to see 100 million users. That's unheard of in terms of a, a technology solution and kind of outstrips uh, things like Instagram, which took two and a half months to get a million users. Netflix took three and a half years to get a million users. So we're talking massively rapid adoption. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of reasons uh, for that that we can get into as well. But I think um, the other sort of consideration is the sort of dystopian thoughts that come with the AI. You know, we've all seen the Terminator movies. Uh, we all know that Skynet becomes self-aware and all that sort of stuff. But um, I think some of that is why it's gaining such rapid adoption as well. Like it, it's easy to share. It's easy to show your friends. It's easy to show your mum. Uh, and it has so much potential, both for good and bad, that we need to explore. So I think some of those are also the factors that feed into why it's uh, gaining such rapid adoption and, and sort of taking up all the year space, basically. Um, but if we can put some of those roller coaster emotions to the to the side for a second, uh, I just wanted to cr critically look at what can it do, what can't it do, and what should we be doing as a, as a sector and as people interested in this. So um, we've already touched on some things it can do, but I think, you know, what it's set up to do basically really well is to generate content really fast. So you can query it, you can get meaningful contact back really fast. You can tidy up content. So, you know, I might have a, a summary of some sort of activity and I want to get a, a kind of more concise version of that and strip out the actions, strip out the tasks that need to happen from that. I can feed information in there and get something meaningful back. Um, I can quickly query it to collate different sort of content so I can get access to resources. I can find recommendations for how to do a certain thing. I can navigate different sort of, uh, you know, new things that I'm experiencing and trying to unravel those using that as a tool. Uh, and depending on your context, you can approach it different ways as well. So if you're trying to figure out what service delivery approach is going to be the best, you might feed it a bunch of data and you might say, mm, which ways should we be doing our work? Where can we find uh, efficiencies? Where can we do different things to do things better? Uh, if you're coming at it from a financial angle, you can feed in, you know, financial budgetary sort of information, different sort of modeling data, and you can try and navigate, you know, how can we make some savings? How can we uh, have a bit more uh, impact in our, in our spend and all that sort of stuff? Some of those things you can do today, some of those things you might be able to do conceptually in, in tomorrow, but um, a few examples that I tested with ChatGPT and with some other things that I thought might be relevant. Um, you know, just going in and saying, uh, what are some top tips and resources for managing hypertension? Um, I've got two kids out of four that are celiac and, you know, uh, two celiacs and a, and a bunch of non-celiacs uh, all in a household create some challenges. Um, so I queried, can you write me a gluten-free meal plan for someone who is celiac? And it gave me back some really interesting answers. Um, gave me a meal plan for a day, mapped that out over a few days. 
I thought, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, can you turn that meal plan into a shopping list for me? Uh, it went about its business and shared back with me a really itemised shopping list of, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables, meats, cereals, all the other things that um, I needed to be aware of. It also had the sort of caveats that, you know, these need to be the gluten-free varieties for them to work. You can't just get any old kind of, you know, cereal or, or flour. It has to be, you know, um, gluten-free or, or sort of rice flour, those sorts of things. Um, and you can do uh, a few other odds and ends, you know, uh, managing type 2 diabetes. Uh, can you give me a workout plan that's going to that's help me uh, manage things? And while I'm doing that, can you give me some tips for how I can manage my blood sugar levels while I'm exercising? Um, you know, those sorts of things are all possible just using the, the tools that are available today. Um, but where it starts to get a bit more interesting and maybe a bit more challenging is when you start to consider it as perhaps a a lighter touch I guess intervention so how do I stop feeling depressed um, how do I deal with these sorts of thoughts um, it does does give some answers to those sorts of things but you know they're kind of generic answers like sleep and diet and exercise and connection and those sorts of things uh, important to note that it always has a nice caveat at the bottom that says check with your, your GP um, but you know does everybody always read all of the T's and C's of the answer that it gets back I think those are some of the things we need to navigate um, and what can it do? Uh, well, it's stuck in 2021, obviously, so um, the data set's kind of static for a, a, a little while yet. Um, sometimes it struggles to get the basics right, you know, stumbles over some fairly standard math questions and perhaps puts too much trust, I guess, in what the humans are saying. Uh, like Albert said, if we can feed in particular types of uh, questions and answers and commentary and feedback and it starts to pay attention to that, some of that sort of stuff, uh, we have to navigate the risk of... Um, are people using it as bad actors and feeding the wrong sorts of information to it? Can we convince it of things that it, you know, perhaps shouldn't be saying or aren't true, for example? Uh, and we often sort of interact or experience, I guess, those um, human interventions, the the sort of training and the guardrails. So, you know, every so often you experience the answer um, as an AI. Uh, I can kind of answer that, but I can't answer that because I've been told not to. So, you know, how do we sort of navigate that if, if we truly want to go to it for um, transparent answers, like uh, was mentioned earlier? Um, so that kind of really leads into the risks that I think we should all be sort of discussing and figuring out along the way. Um, we know that the data is going to have bias. We're all humans and we all have bias. And the data that it's using for training is obviously going to um, reiterate some of that bias. So how do we overcome that? Uh, the black box sort of transparency conversation is another one to consider. Um, and then the concept of trust in, in general. You know, it's been a while since I've received an email from uh, one of my Nigerian prince friends. But, um, you know, if, if you can generate lots so really good content really quickly. Maybe there's a resurgence of spam that has a, a better chance of navigating spam filters and we see different types of scams and, and things sorts of, uh, coming through our, our email inboxes. And I guess the other thing to be uh, well aware of is that it, it feels a bit like a runaway train, right? So this is here, people are using it, they're using it for all sorts of things, whether we want them to or not. And there's a good example of the... Um, Samsung employees entering some information in and hoping to get some uh, meaningful insights back uh, and in the process sort of releasing, I guess, trade secrets and early sort of news about uh, product releases and things like that. So the instant reaction to that was the, the ban hammer and saying thou shalt not use this tool kind of thing. Um, but there's got to be a, a better way of navigating that as a society and community and as organisations as well. 
Um, so I'll really just close with um, a, a phrase I heard the other day from uh, a, a Sunday morning show with Grant Duncan, uh, who was talking about the open letter, um, trying to push pause on AI for six months for, for various different reasons. But he used the phrase worry wisely. And, and for me, that means what can we focus on now? What do we need to be thinking about for later? Uh, I think there's ways that we can explore how it can supplement and augment our work today. Uh, and then there's some pretty big issues that we need to be navigating together uh, for later like regulation, workforce development, and uh, equity and, and supporting good digital citizens. So happy to explore that with all of you today. Great. Thank you, Nick. Well, lots of um, thought-provoking uh, issues came up there, and we've got plenty of questions coming in, which is great. Um, but last, first, we're going to hear from Tanya. Kia I will be going through the slides and, and speak to them, but then hopefully you'll find them um, afterwards. So today I would like to discuss some of the uh, ethical questions related to AI use in, in healthcare, which is something that often ends up in the two heart baskets. Um, but I think whenever major issues arise with technology use, and that includes AI, that there will be an, uh, an ethical question or a tension underneath. So we cannot really ignore them. Um, before I start, a trigger warning, because I will discuss the example um, or case description that discusses suicide in this presentation, so just uh, mentioning that. Um, so I think we often consider AI to be somewhat of a special category within the broader field of technology use in, in healthcare, especially when it comes to ethical questions. Um, and we sort of expect new and, and previously unencountered challenges um, to occur. But I think the truth is that there are many existing and currently unresolved ethical challenges in technology use that will also apply to AI. And I have listed a few examples. And one that I think I want to mention is um, the ongoing risk of alert fatigue. So this is no longer a pressing issue in its original meaning of the, you know, the beeping machines by the bedside, although maybe it still is. Um, but it becomes a, a more complex problem in the sense of deciding the threshold for warnings and uh, pop-ups in those clinical decision support systems. So I think that if we get it wrong, the systems may contribute to errors rather than prevent them if we all develop the habit of sort of clicking away those pop-ups because they're not relevant or they're not timely. And there are data management questions as well that are very relevant to AI. So I think we can learn from these existing uh, questions that we still have not solved um, yet. So today I'd like to look at some of the most pressing questions that relate specifically to AI, but also propose a possible way uh, forward. Um, so on the side of data inputs, we've already um, heard some uh, people talk about skewed data sets and, and potential bias there. I think there is a question of the lack of diversity in the existing data sets that are used to train AI systems. Um, in the presentation, I have a map that shows that data sets um, most often originate from the US and account for the most use, usages there. And that does pose a risk of bias. We've, we've already seen that risk in facial recognition systems that have mainly been trained with photos of white people where you risk creating racial bias. And so it will certainly be relevant to healthcare as AI tools may not be adequately trained for the population they are used in. And that will also have an effect on the output, so the risk of bias as well as errors. 
There are several examples of ChatGPT um, providing misinformation. We sometimes call it hallucinations, where it will invent references, for example. And then the question is, who is responsible for this incorrect information provided, especially in a healthcare setting? Um, I've already talked about the risk of skewed data sets, but there's also a question of how can we address the risk of harm? How do we weigh the benefits of those systems versus potential harm? And to what extent do we apply that old golden rule of first do no harm? And it's interesting to see that with um, AI uh, chatbots and chat GPT, harm may have already occurred. Uh, there's a recent case under investigation in Belgium where in the weeks leading up to the death of a Belgian man by suicide, there were disturbing replies in the conversations that he had with the chatbot Eliza. And uh, I've also shared a screenshot of the insider who have tested the chatbot after warnings were put in place or after this case has happened. And they found that they were not uniformly successful in the sense that the chatbot still gave some disturbing answers to questions around suicide. So the question is, how can we address this? And then lastly, the current use of AI-based chatbots and of chat GPT also raises questions around confidentiality and informed consent, mainly relating to uh, data sharing. And at this point, we don't really have guarantees around privacy, although ChatGPT and the people behind it, OpenAI, um, they do promise that they will not use your data for advertising, only for training purposes. Um, you may say, well, you know, my Google search, when I put in my symptoms, that is not really protected either. And that's correct. But we will need to think about how we use these systems in a healthcare context where you do have more elaborate privacy protections. Um, so where to from here is, I think, my um, my final questions that, that I that I want to address. Often we hear, well, what we need is an ethical framework so that we can guide AI development based on that ethical framework. And there is a 2019 study. And as you may know, in AI land, that's that's a very long time ago. Um, but that study has looked at what ethical um, guidances and frameworks already exist. And they found 84 different guidelines and frameworks. So 84 is a, a huge number. And more recently, in 2021, the WHO has also developed its own guidance for the ethics and governance of AI for health. So then the question is, why are we seemingly not using all of these um, uh, frameworks? Well, there is an overall consensus, I think, on, on some of the values and principles, and others have already mentioned some of them, transparency, justice, fairness, fairness the, the issue of responsibility. Um, and you will see most of these repeated in these frameworks, but we struggle with implementing them. So the, the hard question is, how do you translate these principles to actual technology developments and technology use? The framework of values also does not tell you how to handle conflicts and tensions between values. And it also does not address the elephant in room of profit making, because the companies behind it do want to make a profit, and that may not always be uh, well aligned with um, other principles that we agree on. So how do we proceed? I would argue that we need to stop releasing minimally viable products into the wild or into the world, 
but that we need to agree on extensive testing procedures, first in living labs and then in larger but controlled groups before we make it available to a wider audience. I think it is no longer morally responsible and certainly not with AI and the large language models to skip that phase of rigorous testing to tease out the ethical issues and to find acceptable answers to them. And yes, this may slow innovation down a bit, undoubtedly, but I think it will lead to a better balance between harm avoidance and reaping the benefits of the technology. Great. Thank you, Tanya. Well, such fascinating presentations and we've got questions um, pouring in lots of them on similar themes which is good um, but one and it's prop, uh, cropped up in I think all of the presentations is about the uh, data that's put into tools like chat GPT um, and it's around who owns that and what are the implications if you do put in data um, for privacy especially around health information and in the New Zealand context around uh, data sovereignty um, Albert, could you tackle that one first for us? Yes, thank you. So, yeah, that's a very, very good question in the sense that, uh, as I say now, um, uh, ChatGPT and AI models are based on data. So it means that the data is the core, right? So if the, the models are going to be biased uh, depending on the data that the, has been used to, to train the model. So uh the one just mentioned an example for example in italy now they banned the use of ChatGPT due to the usage of the data that uh yeah one of the things with uh, specifically with ChatGPT is that uh, this comes from open ai that's a company that uh, is not open in the sense that they are not saying how what data they are using and how how they are doing things uh, it's true that there are other large language models that are open source. We know what's the data. We know everything. But uh, in this case, ChatGPT is not open. And uh, yeah, this is something that uh, could be a concern because we basically, we don't understand how this model was, was made. Uh, and yeah, the very, very important point that you mentioned is data privacy, data sovereignty. So we need to know what data they use. Uh, just to know if uh, they use it in the right way or not, right? So uh, this is something that uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, of uh, Maori, they, they are very, very concerned about that because uh, all these big tech companies are using uh, Maori data without asking for permission. So I think that's something that, especially in health, we need to be very, very careful to check that nothing is uh, wrong on that. Because, yeah, data privacy is really, really important. And, and this is something that uh, should be one of the checkpoints of all of these models to check that uh, everything is done in a, in a way that is uh, correct and there is nothing that is done uh, that we, we could uh, regret in the future that something went wrong. Yeah, and on that um, line of questioning, um, this might be one for you, Nick, you talked about this, but someone saying specifically, what about client information? So if I was putting client information into ChatGPT, would I need to anonymize it? Or I guess the bigger question is, should you be putting client information into these sorts of um, systems anyway? Do you want to answer that one? Yeah, my initial thought is no, don't put it in there uh, to start off with. <laughs> um, but there are ways to, I guess, use the tool to to help you in certain ways, right? So, I mean, I wouldn't put my daughter's 
you know, medical record in there to, to get information about how best to manage her celiacs. But I could generally query the tool to say, you know, what are some ways that she can navigate, you know, going to school with celiac and, you know, moving into a flat with celiac and figuring out how she can kind of still enjoy her life and work with her friends and all that sort of stuff to educate them on the importance of her diet and, and the impact that that has on her health. Those are kind of more generic things that you could query it without, I guess, as much um risk or concern I guess about what you're giving away to the tool so I think it's the balance of how we harness them in the right way and leverage them in the right way whilst protecting what's important as well. Did you want to add to that one um, Chris at all there is also a question here specifically asking you about um, yeah sort of your thoughts on clinical advice you know, that people trying to seek from chat GBT and um, could it be the first line to provide some guidance or um, should people refrain from relying on the content it says? Yep, so I think uh, initially um, uh, OpenAI were using what you put into chat uh, GPT to train its newer versions and to kind of update the systems. So anything you put in could then get kind of pulled back. And I think there's a case where Samsung, people at Samsung uh, put in confidential information and then other users were able to see that when kind of asking the same kind of questions. Uh, they've changed some things recently where you can opt out of uh, training its algorithm with your data. And also the API, I think, doesn't um, store your data. Um, but I, I would kind of just be very cautious about it and not put anything in that's at all sensitive or confidential. Um, in terms of um, uh, how can it be used by healthcare professionals, so there's a few kind of really obvious case, use cases. So one is when you go in to see your uh, GP or your uh, healthcare professional, nowadays quite often they're spending a lot of time typing things into computers, um, which can distract a bit from the kind of consultation process and um, might maybe not the best way of practicing healthcare. And so if you can imagine if chat GPT was listening to the conversation, it's probably got the capabilities to do quite a nice summary, put that into kind of a structured format. Um, that data could then be better used for research and quality improvement and things like that and have a better kind of nicer summary. So saving the healthcare professional the time of kind of typing things up. Uh, the other big use case probably is triage. So instead of going to your doctor, initially you have a consultation with chat GPT and they give you some kind of basic information and that probably would be better than current kind of triage, which is a bit clunky and a bit uh, kind of most of the time just says, oh, you're just going to have to go and see the doctor anyway, or it gives you kind of uh, reassurance that might not be that great. Um, so I think those both those things will get quite sophisticated and quite good uh, in the very near future and are going to become real kind of possibilities. Uh, but the dangers is really we don't know if it's going to, even if we evaluated it, uh, say they did a really nice version in six months that was very safe and effective, and we did a really good kind of thorough evaluation and said, yeah, this looks great. Uh, that system is just going to change almost immediately. And we don't really, because of these kind of problems with these kind of emergent properties of these things, we don't really know how they work. We don't know, you know, are they thinking in the same way that a human thinks or is it a kind of different type of uh, intelligence? And this is what the kind of the AI researchers like uh, Jeffrey Hinton are saying, you know, because we don't really know how these things are working can we really trust them to, even if even if they're very accurate about what they're trying to do, is that actually aligned with what we want them uh, to do? So it might start optimizing, not necessarily for your individual best 
uh, care from a kind of human point of view, but might be optimizing for the greater good or for some other uh, kind of thing that we're not really sure why what it's why it's giving the advice it's giving. Um, and there's all sorts of paradoxes and ethical dilemmas uh, doing things like triage and uh, even kind of recording what's said in a com- consultation. Uh, so we're going to have to be very careful, I think, uh, in thinking about how we evaluate and monitor these systems to make sure that they stay useful and helpful and not don't start getting dangerous. Mm. Uh, Tanya, someone's asked you just staying on that theme of sort of real life use. Um, I've said if it, if ChatGBT provided an incorrect response in healthcare and incorrect medical intervention was then performed, what do you think about the um, who's responsible for that? How do you how do you regulate that? Yeah, I think that's one of the the interesting questions right now. Um, What about a missed diagnosis? Who's responsible for that if it's based on the triage system? But also if um, clinicians do come to trust and use the system and it gives a certain advice and it's followed up on and it turns out to be incorrect, who is responsible for this? Um, So far, we've not seen this, well, the clinician basically has always carried the responsibility. So if you currently use medical devices or other tools, um, the, the sort of the person with the um, responsibility when it comes down the line will still be the clinician providing the care. Um, this becomes a bit harder in these AI systems, I think, where um, you will need to probably go through rigorous testing to know that the output is actually correct or that you have a, for example, 98, 99% threshold. But we will have to um, think, especially in regulation, about what happens when uh, there are outputs that are incorrect. So at this point, we cannot use chat GPT in, in such a function, I think, because it's highly unreliable in the output that it, it provides. But when we do come to systems that will be sort of the level of um, medical information output, we will need to think about, do we um, sort of give a, a certain level of responsibility to that technology? And you see that the relationships in that sense between humans and technology may change from how we uh, how we look at them now. I'm not sure if that's a good answer to that question because there there are still many unknowns, but I think it's it's um it's already sort of past our time to ask these questions and we've still not really dealt with them in a thorough way. Yeah, talking about um again on real life use there's a couple of comments here. One saying that um this person says Tafatora has blocked this now. I don't know if that's um, correct, but they said that's a shame as they've found it helpful with some technical encoding matters, which I guess is interesting. We're talking about health um, as a kind of a, a service in terms of improving our well-being, but there are lots of aspects to the health service, aren't there, that um, it might also um, impact. But also just someone else said, given the productivity benefits, what you know, would we expect an AI solution like ChatGBT to be accessible um, or available within Tefatu order. What's one sorts about that in terms of adoption on a sort of national scale as a tool within the health system? Nick, Nick, you're nodding. Let's start with you. 
<laughs> I'm wondering, it sounds like a, an excellent idea, but I mean, the reality and the execution is probably the challenge, right? Um, I mean, we're already grappling with the, the challenges of the, the HELA, pro, HELA program with um, identity and interoperability and, and all those sorts of things. They're all well and trained, obviously, but, you know, it's still early days in terms of border rollout and adoption and how we get through those things to a, a kind of national version of something that we can all utilize and adopt in a meaningful way seems a little bit down the track. Um, so it sounds like an ideal goal, but maybe a challenge to get there <laughs> in a timely way. Do you want to add to that one, Tanya? I wanted to add a critical note, if I may. Um, We've probably, I don't know if, if everyone remembers, but I think the initial promise, and it still exists with electronic health records, is that it will save us time and it will improve the patient-provider interaction. I'm not sure how many people think that we've succeeded in, in sort of getting there to that promise, but I think we have not succeeded yet. And I'm a bit concerned that it will be, or it could be quite similar with ChatGPT, where there's a huge potential but that it's really hard, like Nick said, in the execution phase to make it so that we actually reap these benefits. At this point, I think the electronic health record often is something that requires a lot of uh, the clinician's attention and time. And yes, there's the hope that AI may improve this, but I don't think that's a guarantee. So we will really need to think about how we adopt these systems into our daily sort of clinical care to make sure that they do not become a burden rather than a benefit. Yeah, there's um, a couple more questions here around sort of the data issues and the safety of um, information. So um, Albert, you might be able to start us off on this. Have you considered what if any AI safety guardrails have been built in already by OpenAI um, to address the ethical or moral concerns? And also, can you do can you develop AI to identify biases in the data source? Um, yeah, I think that uh, everybody at the moment is really really concerned uh, about this. Uh, OpenAI is trying now to <clears throat> explain that they are uh, looking at that and they are basically concerned about safety. They are working on that, that they stop uh, working with GPT-5, that uh, all of these things that people are worried they are trying to to be, uh, let's say, yeah, concerned and that they are trying to be um, nice about uh, that. So I, I think that... Uh, there is a need of uh, uh, a lot of discussion and, and 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 especially I think in terms of regulation, I think that's like uh, an uh, aviation, right? So there is not many accidents, and it's because there is a strong regulation and everything is. So I think that yeah, maybe AI is starting. So still things are quite uh, premature. Still, I think we don't understand uh, all these things, but I think that uh, we really need to invest on that. And we really need to, to see how, how to do that. And, and this is something that cannot be done only by these big companies, right? So this is something that uh, needs to be done through experts and especially governments. They need to, to be the ones that should be leading uh, this. And, uh, and just uh, one thing that's in, in terms of uh, this, what is ChatGPT, I think it's very important to remember that this is a tool. 
and uh, and it will be a tool for for a long time. So we are not uh, in terms of uh, AGI. It's no intelligence. It's no. It's it's only it's very good algorithms, but they are still tools. So it's very important that we think that it's a human that is using a tool. Like a human could use a book. So like a doctor could use a book to to read the, the information and use that, but it's the doctor that needs to decide. It's not, that tool cannot be autonomous and cannot be deciding alone. So this is really, really important. And, and these are, the, I think, the basics that we really need to to, to agree and, and decide and, and to avoid meaning, uh, doing mistakes, right? Because the problem with ChatGPT is that it answers uh, I and says, I, I'm saying this, I'm, and then we think that is a, it's like a person. It's not a person. It's only a tool, and and this is something that we really need to 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 understand, not to do mistakes. Because if we think that is a person and can make decisions alone, then yeah, then we are we are in a big trouble. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I mean, um, going on from that, um, Nick, you talked about this in your presentation, but as a tool, how can AI tools be used to complement the work of health professionals and sort of how can health professionals sort of approach this as a sort of partnership, do you think? Good question. I think that- oh, you go, Albert. No, you go for it. Sorry, just a, a quick. So I, I think that one of the nice things of this uh, chat GPT is that they are trying to be based on uh, instruction-based. So it's going to be uh, not only... Uh, proposing, but uh, they, they are able to to build like a, a series of uh, steps uh, that uh, could uh, a series of instructions, and that could be, I think, quite uh, helpful. Yeah, sorry, that's how it. I was just thinking about um, our old friend Clippy from Microsoft Word. You know, <laughs> we all loved him. Oh, we hated him. I can't remember, oh, but yeah, um, we seem to have lost your um, oh. sound there for a minute. Can you hear me? Oh, we might just go to someone else while we re-establish oh, yeah, that. I'm not sure what's happened there. Apologies. Um, yeah, Chris, do you want to pick that one up? Because I know you also talked about that and sort of how health professionals might actually be able to use it as a tool or maybe partner is the wrong word, but what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, so... I think there's so when you're talking about the kind of regulation and whether or not it should be kind of banned or stopped, I think you've got to kind of determine what it's being what people are trying to use it for. So I think like the idea of I work in Fatora, I'm a programmer, and I'm trying, I'm you know this is a really helpful tool for programming. Uh, that's probably pretty low risk uh, for uh, patients as long as you're kind of a you know a decent programmer. You can kind of critique the code that it's giving you. It can probably increase your kind of ability to work. And it's going to be there's going to be lots of cases like that, like your the accounting department, you know, the supply chain, all of these things. This type of technology could be really, really useful. Um, what we're really worried about, really, is where it kind of replaces clinical decision making, or it provides very authoritative uh, kind of decisions uh, that it's not really in the place uh, to do. So I think um, those kind of uses you shouldn't be using them at the moment because of this confabulation or hallucination. Uh, issue, uh, but we'll likely see specifically trained models that are pretty reliable uh, in the future. And what we need to do is make sure we evaluate those really robustly before we put them into practice, but also have evaluations that are timely. So we're not waiting 15 years to make use of this um, 
pretty amazing uh, technology. So I think it's just thinking about what is the use and there's existing kind of regulations on medical devices about how much care we take before we implement um, something, depending on what kind of level of danger uh, they are and current kind of approaches to regulation are to take the same approaches as medical devices and say, you know, how is this being used? Is it really making its decisions and we're just leaving it to it? In which case we have to be really sure that it's, you know, safe and effective. Uh, but if it's uh, just being helping us do the programming or, you know, the plumbing of healthcare, um, we could probably be a bit more relaxed and make use good use of, you know, the new technology. Mm. What about sort of what we might need to do if there was going to be adoption around digital literacy or understanding of AI tools um, for both health professionals and consumers of healthcare? What do you think needs to happen in that space? Nick, do you want to try again? See if we've got your audience. Yeah, can you hear me now, Rebecca? Yes, we can. Great. Cool. Um, I, I think, you know, digital literacy, digital citizens are, are a big challenge at the moment. Um, we've got a rush of tools, you know, coming at us, whether it's AI or, or any other number of things. And we've got a, a workforce that's pretty stretched and starved. And, you know, we, we often hear we're people, people, not technology people, which is, you know, very true. But um at the same time, we've got access to all these wonderful tools and it would be nice if we were able to to harness and utilise them in, in new and different ways as well. So I don't have a perfect answer about how to improve workforce development and ensure that we can all enable and, and adopt sort of digital tools in, in new and different ways. But I think in some ways it does just start with um, experimenting a little bit on the things that are safe. Um, so, you know, the plumbing of healthcare is a nice place to, to consider starting. If you can streamline a few things that otherwise keep us busy or take up time that free us up to focus on where we can add the most value, which is the clinical decision making and the, and the more sort of frontline services and, and engaging with people directly. Um, I think that's a, a safe place to start experimenting and we should be doing some of that um, as a workforce. I think um although you know the the release of ChatGPT kind of makes it more accessible it's still not sort of widely adopted and widely accessible at the end of the day so um i wonder whether you know organizations like tefatu or others around us should um be trying to figure out how we we make uh, opportunities for people to test and experiment in new and different ways whether that's you know just rolling workshops or experimental sort of activities that organizations can you know get together and figure out how can this solve a few problems for us? How can we try and, uh, you know, experiment with some of these things? And obviously happy to, to be a part of any of those. I really enjoy talking about this stuff. So <laughs> just invite me too. Great. Did anyone want to add to that before we move on? Um, well, we might just go to a final question. Um, and Tanya, this one might be um, more for you, but just wondering what's happening uh, you touched on sort of the policy space around AI and its use in healthcare globally, um, but how can policies or guidelines be tailored or implemented locally and what is actually happening in that space in New Zealand, if you've got any insight into that? Yeah, so um, I think there's input coming from different um, sources and different angles, which is a good thing, but which also makes it sometimes challenging to then come to sort of encompassing guidelines or frameworks. Um, I've mentioned the WHO one, and we've got um, specific frameworks in place in New Zealand with the Privacy Act and uh, a number of regulatory systems, let's say, that also apply to AI. So part of the question is, do we need a new framework for AI or can we 
use existing frameworks that we used for many years and that we sort of adapt to fit this purpose of, of the new technology of AI? Or do we need to really consider um, a, a new both legal as well as ethical framework that will guide this, uh, this work in New Zealand? Um, in New Zealand, I think it's been mentioned before, but data sovereignty will be an important part of this, making sure that we have that um, indigenous voice in the um, uh, frameworks as well, which uh, can be overlooked, especially in, in the global sources. Um, and I think we should... Um, we should probably not be afraid to think critically about what we bring out. How can we, like I said in my presentation, how can we implement the uh, frameworks that we develop? Um, Chris has mentioned checklists. Probably checklists will be very useful. They all um, also come with limitations because there may be other topics that you haven't thought of in that checklist. It's hard to be really um, all encompassing or, or comprehensive. So it will have to be um, a flexible document to a certain extent. You don't want to lose yourself in bureaucracy. It needs to be practically usable. And I think that is going to be the main challenge there. Great. Well, thank you so much. And it is just on 1.30, so we are going to have to wrap up. But what a fascinating discussion, and I hope it will lead to more. And as we know, it's a rapidly evolving area. So I hope that um, our viewers have enjoyed this. Thank you so much to Wild Bamboo for sponsoring the webinar. Thanks to our excellent panellists and to all of our viewers for joining us today. And thank you for supporting HIMS. If you're not already a member, you can click on the HINS logo on your screen or go to hins.org.nz and we do have uh, individual and organisational membership options. Um, and we also hope you can join us for our next live webinar, which is going to be on Wednesday, June 28th. Thank you.